Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ginawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia. And I'm talking today with Maxim Alyukov and Andrei Semenov. Maxim is a postdoctoral fellow at the King's College London Russia Institute. And Andrei is a senior researcher at the Center for Comparative Historical and Political Studies. Maxim and Andrei have been carrying out large scale research into the way in which the current war in Ukraine has been presented in mass media and social media in Russia. This report is called Propaganda Setbacks and the Appropriation of Anti-War Language, and I'll link to that full report in the show notes. We're going to discuss some of the findings on the podcast today. So thanks for joining me on the podcast, Maxim and Andre. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. What motivated yourselves and your third co-researcher to look into the way in which the war in Ukraine is being presented in mass media and social media within Russia post 24th of February? I think we started to discuss it shortly after the invasion started because there is a discussion going on for years about how the public opinion polls capture the public mood in Russia or you know, in, authoritarian, in authoritarian countries in general. And there is much of a skepsis towards uh, public opinion polls in general, and particularly about the war and how the Russians approach the subject. So we are like, I'm a political scientist, and we have a small group of scholars just discussing it, I think, almost constantly online, everywhere in groups, in, on Facebook, etc. So one, uh, th- there are several options to proceed from this stalemate when we don't know what's really happening uh, in public opinion. One is to do the qualitative study. That's what Public Sociology Lab does to a great extent, which Maxim also represents. And another way is, of course, to jump into the uh, world of social networks and see what's going on there. In this project, we had an opportunity to have this uh, access to the social media and, well, traditional media websites and, you know, repositories of the messages related to war, related to the situation in Ukraine. So it was a great opportunity just to try to approach the subject from a different angle. Uh, And the subject is how Russians perceive the war, how do they react to the certain events and, and whether there is a dynamic behind the attitudes towards the invasion. Mm-hmm. And did you want to add to that, Maxim? Uh, my research focuses on disinformation and propaganda. I've been doing this for the last eight years. You know, th- there is this argument used by Russian propaganda very often. They, uh, when you oppose the war, they typically ask you, where have you been in the past eight years? They usually use it to challenge people who oppose the war. So I can openly say that in the past eight years, I've been studying Russian propaganda disinformation when I'm asked this question. And obviously, the war sort of revealed that propaganda in Russia and the media effects, and it's even more powerful than we thought before. So obviously, it's very important to look at how the topic is covered in the media, how media organizations and propagandists shape the narrative, and how it's sort of received and understood and interpreted by people, because this basically explains a lot about the reaction of the Russian public to the war and to the conflict in general, which started uh, in 2014. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that we underestimated as the social scientists, because we, we thought we knew everything about electoral autocracies, especially Putin's Russia, uh, and we usually laughed at the idea that propaganda can work to the extent that it will, you know, you know make people believe that such thing as the invasion of 24th of February is irrational, is something, is, is something even that you, 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 can just, you can just live with. 
So I think we underestimated to a great extent the uh, influence of propaganda in Russia. And the, the natural question from here is how, are the, how, how it is recepted, what are the channels, what are the uh, consequences of this of propaganda and, you know, how, how public sort of interact with the public, uh, with the propaganda material. So it all stems from our, I think, misperceptions as a scientists and as scholars and as citizens to an extent to what was happening before 24th of February and what, what happened after. Mm-hmm. Important questions. You found in the research that the use of certain words and terms in Russian state media has decreased since the 24th of February. Maybe if I could start with you, Maxim, what were some of those words that decreased in usage? First of all, we found that the amount of propaganda in general decreased significantly between February and June, right? So they focus on war two times less now than in the beginning of the war. And second, yes, we found that uh, there are specific wars which were actively used in the beginning of the invasion, which are sort of almost absent from state media today, such as the justifications for invasions, for the invasion mentioned by Putin, such as uh, denazification and demilitarization. And there are uh, other sources of data which sort of explain why it happened and what's actually happening. We know that these concepts did not resonate with, with the Russian public. So there are many surveys showing that other goals of the invasion proclaimed by Putin, such as protection of Western Ukraine, they sort of clear to people, right? So people can sympathize with these goals and understand them. But these terms, they just, they were struggling to understand what these terms actually mean. And on the other hand, this decrease in amount of propaganda, it basically demonstrated that the Russian public is getting tired of the, of the war. And there are surveys showing that people are getting tired of the news. The reach of TV channels is decreasing because you cannot focus public attention on such an emotional topic for almost half a year. That's why they're basically decreasing the amount of uh, propaganda and reintroducing some entertainment shows, TV shows, in order to avoid losing the audience, because if you lose people, you lose control of people. Just add that we know that Putin and his administration is obsessed with opinion polls. So they do rely on you know closed opinion polls and on every single bit of information that will allow them to understand better the public mood. And we know that they are doing a great job on that. And it's just interesting that they failed to understand that these two terms, specific terms that justify the invasion, demilitarization and denazification, they, they, they didn't work. So either they probably they didn't have a prior public polls just to keep, you know, everybody out of the loop of decision making loop or anything else. But clearly, these two terms failed. The, the other two that we also track in our research, namely the protection of Donbass people and the protection of Russian language, they were in the media before the invasion. So since 2014, it was out as a propaganda tool. So basically, they just recycle this concept on and on. And just on the reasons why they decrease the amount of propaganda in specific terms, we know that the invasion was designed as the Blitzkrieg, as a very fast and unexpected event. And they didn't expect it has to be that long, the invasion. So the propaganda machine wasn't prepared for the long run. And now they have to reassess the situation. They have to pick another terms and other concepts, and they don't, they don't know what are these concepts. And actually, they want to steer public away from the war because essentially there is, no, there is nothing there that would help the Kremlin's legitimacy to hold. So I think, yeah, they're pretty aware of the situation. I mean, the propaganda machine, they're trying to tune it. And that's why we see this 
change in dynamics of specific terms and general concepts, again, like protection of Donbass people or things like that. Mm -hmm. It is interesting that you found that that term denazification, which always seemed to me like kind of a bizarre ideological stretch, didn't actually resonate as much with Russian populations as Putin obviously thought it would. You also found differences between the way in which the war or quote-unquote special military operation was presented in state media and the way that it's discussed in social media. So maybe I'll start with you this time, Andre. What were some of those differences? We should start from some methodological thing here because this is important. Since March 2022, we've got this new legal framework, the laws that criminalize actually, it is now called the fakes against the military and the undiscreditation of Russian army. Meaning that any public post on contact, this is the largest social network, one of the largest social networks in, in Russia, much like Facebook. If any public statement appears in this network, you might be targeted by the regime, you know, from security apparatus, and you can be uh, fined, or if it goes as far as to the article called fakes against the Russian military, then you can have a, a real sentence. Recently, in July, one municipal council member got seven years for just saying something uh, at the meeting, and then it like it was spread online, and then he's got his criminal conviction. So the, the thing is that we don't know how much censorship is going on in the social networks. Apparently, pro-war public is more active simply because they have no any punishment for that. And anti-war activists and anti-war statements can be self-censored or even censored because uh, Roscommodzor and contact administration, they block uh, the publics, they block uh, the resources that are linked to the anti-war statements or anything, even just simply related to the war against the official narrative. So we don't know much about the composition, how social networks really reflect the, the general public. But it looks like there are differences in terms of conversations that are going on in social network, as opposed to uh, what official traditional media are trying to portray. For instance, we saw that certain terms like the war, for instance, in traditional media, on TV and in printed press, usually is referred to things like the gas war. Uh, so the, the war that Europe sort of struggling with the gas shortages and energy shortages in general. Or they have a term information war, again, uh, sort of Western attacks on Russian information space or Russian mines, things like that. On the contrary, in social media, of course, war uh, refers to situation in Ukraine. And there are a couple of other terms that are contrasting in a, in a way that public discusses uh, it online versus what is going on uh, on TV and other traditional media, but like the crisis again. The Kremlin's propaganda tries to portray the crisis. It is something uh, that is not in Russia. It is in Europe, it is in the world, there is the grain crisis, there is the energy crisis, all sorts of crises in Europe, in America. I don't know about Australia, probably they think Australia also is in crisis, but not in Russia. And again, if you delve into the social networks, there is another perception of what is meant by crisis and how it is related to Russian economy, sanctions, things like that. So there are different types of conversation regarding the same terms that, is, that we can spot through this type of analysis. Yeah. Did you want to add to that, Maxim? We can clearly see the difference between the amount and the frequency in usage of all this euphemism, which are used by propaganda and enforced and imposed by the regime. So it seems like, judging by these key terms, social media users are more open. They do not use euphemism. For, for them, the war is the war. 
while the government is trying to basically create completely different language in order to mask brutality and the, the reality of war. Mm-hmm. I guess in some ways I'm surprised that the word war is used so commonly in social media channels when it is basically criminalized. Andre, how closely is social media monitored by authorities in Russia? Social media has been in a, in a state of sort of having a firmer grip of the authorities for a decade or so. It's not a free space anymore as it used to be in 2000s where there was like things like Live Journal or Facebook then Twitter contact here. So you could, before Fair Election Movement in 2011-2012, the online sphere was sort of vibrant and full of all these critical voices of diverse critical from, from nationalists to leftists. Since then, there was a, the grip was firmer and firmer, and there were different instances installed like Roskomnadzor, but also increasingly the security agencies started to rely on prosecution of online activism. Honestly speaking, I'm also surprised that Russians can disregard the threats to them. So they go the government online. Partially you can explain it, of course, that probably they don't know the consequences. So you have to be exposed to activism networks or something in order to understand the full consequences of uh, prosecution, the same things online. Another explanation, of course, which sort of complementary is that I think many Russians believe that this is the way they can sort of voice their discontent and voice their critical position uh, against the governments. They feel ob- obliged to do that simply because this is this is what, you know, normal person would feel like voicing their uh, rightful discontent. Mm-hmm. And so in what way, Maxim, has state media responded to different types of narratives being put forward on social media? I would say that they, of course, adapt to challenges when something doesn't work, like with this intensification and demilitarization, they respond. But they are not that quick and flexible, and it's not that easy to invent something which works, because they, basically in the past eight years, they've been building on this propaganda from previous years. So some narratives such as NATO or uh, protection of Donbass, they just work and they've been working in the past eight years. So it's not that easy to just create some terms out of nothing from scratch, which would work. So that's why we primarily see that they abandon some terms which do not work rather than inventing terms which would work because they have to achieve some some degree of resonance. So I have not really seen some new super sophisticated sort of strategies and techniques. It's mainly slightly adjusting and abandoning something which doesn't resonate. Yeah, it's interesting that, again, Maxim knows it better, but we know that Russian propaganda before 24th of February was quite sophisticated in terms of it gave some leeway to the rank-and-file journalists, or journalists, or propagandists, or, you know, people who would provide the system, the, the machine, with some new ideas, new approaches, how to frame, how, what concepts to pick, how to you know, tune again to the public, the, the narrative. And now it looks like because of the sort of centralization of whole system that the decision should be made on the top and there is much less leeway on the ground in the regions or everywhere else, abandoning this initiative is a blow up to the whole propaganda machinery that they have a quite limited number of you know topics that they can pick up or concepts they can use and now it looks like they have a shortage of these ideas especially in terms of justification the long run war every day we hear about you know that everything is going according to the plan which plan we don't know 
even if you are you know average uh, TV watcher, you start wondering what's going on with this planned uh, invasion. And another thing I think we have to mention is that I think Russian propagandists, especially those who are the heads of TV channels, they really understand how all this works. Rent corporations called Russian propaganda as a firehouse of falsehood. So something that is just constantly produces a stormfall of lies, etc. But it's not that simple, right? So they have to blend facts with the uh, falsehood. They have to rely on different sort of platforms. And they understand that in order to make the narrative credible, they have to be a little bit more sophisticated and, you know, again, rely on the local initiative, pick up new concepts, etc. And now they, I think they'll like this and they're losing this credibility. And that's what we see, for instance, at the polls, the tracks, the coverage of TV, it's now in decline. So the main channels, Pierre Canal, Antiva and the others, they're losing the auditory. And that's something that the heads of the channels are pretty much aware of. They know that there are these setbacks of the propaganda that they unleashed in the first weeks of invasion. So I think they're in pretty much like a search for new ways how to do that, and they probably don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a sort of a trade-off, right? So in order to make your content attractive, you have to rely on journalists' creativity. But when you rely on their creativity, you give them some degree of autonomy and you lose control. And to link this discussion to some recent news of the day, Ukrainian, uh, Ukraine's counteroffensive, right? So how it was covered in the media for quite some time, it was just silence. So they were just trying to avoid this topic. You open uh, the main Russian newspapers and you find something about this topic on page eight in the end. And the reason why it's happening is because journalists are sort of afraid because if you take initiative and you basically decide how to cover such an important and sensitive topic uh, on your own, then you'll face consequences, uh, right? So your superiors, the Kremlin, they will not like it. So you are always waiting for instructions and you start covering this topic only when you receive instructions from your superiors. So that's why there was this avoidance delay. And then step by step, main chief propagandist started to try to reframe Ukraine's counteroffensive and Russia's defeat using this euphemism again, regrouping or redeploying instead of defeat and so on and so on. But overall, this situation demonstrates that the uh, journalists are just waiting for instructions. And when system is controlled manually, it's not very effective and people are basically tuning out. Mm-hmm. Where are you going now with the research? Are you continuing with the project? At the moment, we are focused towards like just trying to understand better the messages that are thrown into the media sphere in Russia from the official, traditional propagandist media and how it is recepted, how it is sort of reverberates in the system. The next report will be focused on the comparison between the networks. Like we have Anaklasniki, which is for a little bit older auditory. We have Contacti, we have Telegram channels, we have YouTube. So we want to compare these platforms in terms of their coverage and their reception of war-related topics. And of course, at the end, we want to you know, pull it all uh, together and understand how uh, the dynamics of the propaganda machinery and the public reception within this half a year. We have some limitations, like, for instance, the social media data, we only have July, August and September, because this is a sheer amount of data there is just enormous. So we have certain limitations in terms of data and again, certain limitations in terms of what we can do with this analysis. But yeah, I mean, there are lots of ideas. If anyone's interested in, you know, in throwing out the questions, etc. We'll be happy to, I think, know about it. It's a fascinating and also valuable project. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today and sharing some information and insights regarding your work. Thanks. Thanks for inviting us. Thanks for listening. 
and thanks to Mr Smith for our theme music.